Hi, and welcome back to To Think Minimum, the podcast of the Technology Policy Institute. Today is Tuesday, November 21st, 2023, and I'm Scott Walston, president of the Technology Policy Institute. The dictator's dilemma refers to an authoritarian government's challenge of trying to use information and communications technology for economic development while also controlling the information available to the population. The biggest country that fits that description is, of course, China. To talk about that, we're excited to have with us Professor Mason Sun, who has new detailed empirical research on this issue quantifying the trade-off. Professor Sun is an assistant professor in the School of Information Sciences at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Her research examines the political economy of information, the geopolitics of data, and information policy. She served as a fellow on the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on China and is an affiliated faculty with the MIT Future Tech. She recently completed her PhD at MIT, followed by a postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford University. She's bilingual in English and Chinese and has also written stories, plays, and music and staged many of her works in China, Singapore, and the US. Mason, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Sky. It's a great pleasure. Um, so let's start off just talking about your paper. Give us give us a quick overview of what you found and uh, why it matters. Absolutely. So in short, my research is about the impact of internet control in China, but I'm not looking at the uh, political impact of the internet control. So that is a topic that has been studied many a time by political scientists, by political communication scholars. So instead, I am actually looking at the impact of internet control on productivity and on innovation. So more specifically, what I looked at at this in this paper is a major wave of internet control shock in China that happened in 2014. So what I found was two things. So the first thing that I found was that this 2014 internet control shock is associated with a 25% increase in revenue for Chinese domestic data intensive firms. So firms that employ data as a primary factor of production over the Chinese domestic data non-intensive firms. So there you can sort of see this, you know, at face value, this seems to land support for claims such as the USTRs that the allegation that China has been using, for example, internet control, internet censorship as a form of trade barrier, right? But just in a digital context. So of course I got curious and I and I extended this analysis to the US-China context. So I brought in basically the US firms during the same period of time, and I extended this analysis, and surprisingly or not, the result actually did not translate to the bilateral context. So if anything, the, the, uh, the Chinese data intensive firms do not seem to have done better than their U.S. counterparts during this time period. If anything, they, they actually seem to have done a little worse. So what this suggested to me in turn was that there are powerful countervailing forces at play apart from this beneficial effect for the Chinese data intensive firms. And that gets to the second thing that I found with my research, where I looked at the impact of the uh, the internet control shock on not on productivity, not on firm performance, but on innovation, more specifically on research output. So there I discovered that the same 2014 internet control shock in China has incurred 10 to 13% reduction in research quality for Chinese researchers, conditional on how dependent their, their discipline is on internet access, basically, in producing knowledge. And again, I extended this time, this, this analysis to the US-China context, and this time it did translate. So the again, the 2014 internet control shock seems to be associated 
with up to 23 to 24% decline in research quality for Chinese researchers vis-a-vis relative to their U.S. counterparts, regardless of what discipline they are in. So holding constant the discipline, there is a 23 to 24% marginal reduction in research quality, which I think is a huge one. So before we talk, go on to talk a little more about the substance of it, uh, tell us a little bit about this internet control shock. What do you mean by that? What was it? I think most people know about the Great Firewall of China, but but they may know the exact exactly what you're referring to. Yeah. So note that the Great Firewall, so to speak, has varied tremendously its strength over time. So sometimes you would see a lot of websites being blocked very strictly. At other times, you seem to have a period of relaxation, for example. So so to get at this variability over time, the first thing that I did was that I mined the data from this website called gridfire.org. So what they do is, is that they have been using physical servers located within mainland China to routinely test thousands and thousands of websites, domains, their accessibility from within China on a pretty regular basis. So I mined their data and, you know, which literally, right, tested the accessibility of, of all these multitude of domains over time. So what I found was that there was around end of May, early June 2014, lots of websites across the board were all of a sudden subject to a very major wave of throttling disruption that lasted for almost two years. What was the cause for that? Why did they do that then? Well, presumably it was the timing of it was right before the 25th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square incident. So that sort of attests to the primary motivation of this being a political event. It's exogeneity to to market and to innovation. You know, if we're interested in in, in the uh, uh, econometrics aspect. some of us are very interested in econometrics and some people not so much, but explain just a little bit about why this change and what we call a, sh- a shock, why, th- why that matters to your research. To understand the impact of this, right, why we should care about this, this internet control, we really, I think, have to first go back to understand what internet control is about. And ultimately, I think we need to understand internet control as a form of information flow restriction. So that gets to the question of what is there in the flow of information? We can think of the information essentially as containing many different things, right? There are many different things that are bound up in the same flow of information. And for our purpose here, I think there are at least two things that we can can distinguish. There is the flow of data, right, as a primary factor of production for the so-called data-driven industries that employ data, for example, for training their core algorithms that underlie their core products and services from which they derive a major stream of their revenue. So that's, that's one thing. But then in the same information flow, you also have, you know, ideas, right? The flow of ideas, particularly the politically charged ideas that remain to be the primary motivation for sovereign governments to impose this kind of information, internet control for maintaining, for example, domestic stability. But then there's also the flow of knowledge. Um, That is the main driver for innovation for domestic researchers, such as, for example, in 
piece of technical know-how, a piece of cutting-edge research, these remain to be a principal driver for, for innovation. So to the extent, right, that both data and knowledge are bound up in this information flow, when a government imposes a, you know, information internet control shock, such as the one we witnessed in China in 2014, at least two things should happen. So the first thing is that this constitutes a form of knowledge flow restriction. So what happens there is that the domestic knowledge intensive workers, you know, such as ourselves, we'd like to think, basically people who rely on the, the access to the existing stock of knowledge in producing their own, now they cannot access the same stock of knowledge from the outside world to the, ex to the same extent as before. So I'm not saying that they, they cannot access anything, right? But what I'm saying is that the rate, it's the rate of such access that is going to make all the difference. So put this more concretely, imagine you go to a country under internet control, you are used to browsing, let's say, five, 10 articles an hour, easy, right? And now you can only access, because Google Scholar is blocked, for example, or if not blocked, throttled, let's say, and so are the journal, your favorite journal websites. And then your rate of this access drops to, let's say, one to two articles an hour if you're lucky. And that slowed rate of knowledge access in turn leads to your slowed rate of knowledge production as a result. So that's, that's the knowledge side of the story. So this is a form of knowledge barrier, this internet control. Now we can see it as a form of knowledge barrier. But then on the data side, what happens there is quite different. So what happens there is that now the domestic consumers, they cannot access the foreign digital products and services at the same rate as before. Again, to use an example, you go to one of these countries, you find that your favorite apps are blocked slash throttled. So what are you going to do? So to the extent that an indigenous equivalent of these apps and websites to the extent that they exist, you are going to switch to these domestic quote unquote substitutes, right, of these foreign digital products and services. And this should then lead to both an increase in the sales revenue as well as a supply of data as a raw material for these domestic data intensive sectors. And there we have, I think, a pretty familiar kind of trade barrier story just in a digital context. Do you view this as a short run, short run benefit, long term cost? Kind of situation? I or... would say so. Just based on what I found, I think it is a pretty straightforward. If we look at the timelines, I think it's a pretty straightforward story where on the knowledge barrier side, right? Because what I found was that everybody loses, it's just a matter of extent, whereas the benefits accrued to these domestic data intensive firms, they tend to be more um, immediate. So, yes, to your question, I think the answer is yes. At what point now, so now we're getting into sort of more speculative areas. What do you think the relevant timeline is for sort of seeing the effects on innovation? I mean, you're talking about, you know, the effects of something that happened in 2014, which is almost 10 years ago. Uh, well, I guess the, the effects happened less, less than that, but you know, would they, do you think we would expect to see all else equal, some kind of slowdown in innovation as a result of that by, by now? Did they see the effects or is it, is it, is it later? Is it, you know, going to be sort of so on the margin you can't, you know, we can't really detect it. What, what do you think? Well, if you ask me, I think the recent signs that we have, we have been seeing about the Chinese economy, I think they actually have no small, in no small part to do with this very, very practice, this very thing that has been happening in the infosphere 
in the uh, the Chinese information system where you have this big blockade, like big sort of like blockage of information flowing in and out of the country. I think that has, I actually think that has a lot to do with the sort of downturn trajectories that we've seen about the Chinese economy. Uh, the thing is, right, I think the, the, the irony there is we all hear about We've all heard about the double circulation strategy, right, on the part of China that was very much triggered by the U.S. sanctions against China a couple of years, mm -hmm. a few years ago. I think the irony is, is that, sure, you know, there's this now, this internal circulation, right? You know, that strategy is ultimately about self-reliance. It's about self-reliance on the internal market over the external market. It's about the internal circulation of capital. But I think long before that, since long before that, at least 2014, if, if, if not even, even earlier than that, we've had this internal circulation of, of information and of knowledge that has been going on the whole time. And that's got to have some kind of impact, given just the magnitude of this impact across the board. We're not talking about, recall what I just said, we're not talking about just like some restricted some small number of fields, we're really talking about a negative impact across the board. That's got to have some kind of impact in some form or fashion down the road. And I think what we're seeing now is really part and parcel of that effect playing out. Do you think that there's some risk of, of it turning into a self-perpetuating cycle where the, the, the leaders see the economy slowing? And so then they think, well, we have to boost our domestic our domestic industry, although not that they've been so friendly to their own domestic companies, but and by by restricting information flow even more, which would give you this short term benefit, but again, you know, ex exacerbating the long term innovation cost. Yeah, I definitely see a possibility in that. I I definitely think that is one of the likely scenarios. Number one. The first thing is there could be a lot of ground for complacency on the part of the uh, government over there. Why? Because overall, actually, China's innovation output has been on the rise, very mm -hmm. steady rise, particularly if we look at fields, certain fields in AI that are very much data fueled. There is a huge data endowment domestically, right, within China. So, so that, I think, has, you can say, offset some of this decline in the capacity for innovation as the result of this decline decreased access to external knowledge. So the the state, the, the planners could very much look to this positive trajectory and and think, okay, that's that's pretty good. You know, any additional advantage we would gain from relaxing internet control is probably not going to worth the 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 lessened degree of political control that we are going to to have as as a result of this. So I, I think that's a very plausible argument that they're they're going to make. I think on the whole, the, the the state is aware of this detriment on innovation in a very broad, in a very generic kind of sense, because otherwise we would not have seen episodes where, for example, websites like GitHub, they actually got unblocked following mm. protests of, you know, the coders and programmers. The government has been made aware of this drag on innovation from a measure like, you know, internet control many a time. But the question whether they will take some 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 kind of corrective measure here and now, whether they would be sufficiently incentivized to take a corrective measure, that's a completely different question. And there are at least three pretty important reasons as to why they would not be incentivized to do something about it. 
despite what somebody looking from the outside would think that, oh, okay, they, they would absolutely want to do something to correct this. So first is a matter of timeline. So if we look at the timeline, right, for this kind of innovation loss from a decreased access to external knowledge to materialize in, into basically into monetary terms, we are almost necessarily talking about a longer timeline than, for example, the benefits to accrued to these domestic digital technology firms on the one hand. And more importantly, I think the timeline for the domestic threats to, to domestic instability, right, that remain to be the primary motivation for the government to impose this kind of control in the first place. So when weighed, you know, it's not that you know, the innovation pre premise is not important, but you just got to weigh it against these much more kind of pressing concerns and threats. And unfortunately, you know, in this context, that often has to take a backseat. The second factor here is we can think in terms of who the winners and losers are from this internet control. So we know who the winners are, right? They are the technology firms, the digital technology data intensive firms, many of which are quite powerful financially and politically. And also the, the the political rulers themselves who stand to benefit from this added degree of control for the purpose of maintaining, you know, their, their regime security and domestic stability. Well, the losers are, who are we talking about? We're talking about researchers, scholars, professors, students, <laughs> right? All in all, a pretty, comparatively, all in all, a pretty powerless group who also tend to be more diffuse, both in terms of their, you know, them being scattered around the country at like research institutions and universities, and also in terms of their interests. So, so there you have a classic kind of collective action conundrum where you have this asymmetry, right, in the ability to exert some kind of influence over the, the, the political decision-making process of the, of the small group of, of leaders. And the last factor here is, okay, now, Let's say, even if the government is fully aware of this detrimental effect and it's super willing to do something about it, and they're also fully on board with my findings on this differential impacts on different academic fields, the thing is, what are they going to do? How are they going to do it, right? Because essentially, you, in order to take a corrective action to compensate for this kind of loss in innovation capacity as a result of this, this, this knowledge access barrier, you would be arriving, you would be attempting to arrive at a dollar amount per unit decline in knowledge production due to the decline in knowledge access for each of the knowledge domains. So that's already a mouthful for me. So mm -hmm. imagine how complex and inefficient a process that is going to be in practice when you're actually trying to implement, right, something, something, a corrective measure of sorts. Because, you know, as you can imagine, the default policy instrument there would be to increase R&D spending, right, but differentially so, to differentially across different academic fields. And, and even for you know, a simple tariff for a specific good in a well-defined sector, if you're just trying to transfer the, you know, from uh, the domestic producers to compensate the domestic consumers, they, that already tends to be, get very inefficient very quickly, let alone something as complex, nuanced, and dynamic, right, as something as, you know, trying to compensate the researchers for their loss in, in, in knowledge access which also is a super, it varies from sector to, from, from field to field. And also it's, it's rapidly changing too. It's a highly dynamic situation. Um, so the, the way you're, the way you're describing it, the firms are generally on the side of, or generally agree with the government, maybe not for the same reasons, but they, they appreciate the protectionist aspect 
of it. And, you know, the losers, of course, are the researchers and, you know, people nobody, nobody cares about. But are firms that clear that firms are on the side of blocking of less information coming into the country? I mean, they, so many of them rely on flows of information here in the, in, in, in the West, broadly speaking, firms are very much against kind of data localization uh, practices. So why would that be different in China? Or is it, or is it just that the, that the short-term, the short-term profit implications outweigh any, any of that? And in particular, since, you know, I think we're required by law now to talk about AI in every single conversation, that's an extremely data intensive field. And so firms working on AI, do they feel differently from, from, from other areas? Yeah, so I think you the nail on the head. I think the firm's attitude toward this kind of protectionist barrier, uh, you know, for for internet control, I think they are not at all clear cut. Because I think you are absolutely right that firms also lose as innovation players, right? Firms, sure, they are producers of digital products and services, but at the same time, in order to do that, they also have to innovate most of all. And I think they are certainly also bearing the brunt. From, from this kind of information flow restriction, generally less so than academics because they are, they tend to be, I mean, in general, better positioned to take advantage of resources to circumvent this, this internet control compared to, you know, a, a professor at a, you know, a regular university, for example. Now, so the, the source of their benefit remains primarily to be from the data dividend from the domestic consumers who are, you know, made to switch to their products because the, uh, the, the, the foreign products and services are blocked. So that's the trade protection story that we just told. The second caveat I would throw in is the state and the so-called tech giants, they actually don't have the best kind of relationship over the, over the years. And as if the 2021 crackdown has not reminded us enough, right? So, so I, even though I consider them to be the winners of the story, I think they're, it's, it's a tenuous one. Do not think at the end of the day, they have that much sway over the government, over the decision to whether or not to impose internet censorship. I, I still think internet censorship, internet control in that country remains to be primarily about maintaining domestic stability. I think in the past, in the past few years, the firms, from the perspective of this, this data dividend that they were able to acquire, made, made them kind of welcome this as a nice byproduct. And the same thing for the government. It's very much of an afterthought as opposed to, oh, let's impose these nationwide throttling campaigns just so that our own Chinese big tech can forge ahead. I do not think that is what was going on. Well, so even if in China, the the, the reasons for doing it are, are different, it seems like it would play out the same way here. And you would see the same, I mean, in, in principle, it could be profitable in the short run to restrict information in any country, right? Do you think you're, we're seeing any of that today in other countries outside of China, I mean? India. India is the country that that mm -hmm. certainly comes to mind because India has been blocking in their context, in their case, it's it takes a different form because how they do it is primarily through the blocking of apps, mobile apps on mobile phones. Also taking into account how 
vast majority of Indian internet users actually access the internet through their mobile devices as opposed to des desktops. So we are talking about hundreds and hundreds of apps, mostly from China, but there are also other apps in the last like two or three years. And that's a huge number. And you also, you have reports about how this blocking pattern seems to have corresponded with, for example, how the Indian firms, the Indian technology firms have been doing. So there, you could definitely potentially make a trade protectionist story there. So the bottom line really is, we tend to think of this as the dictator's dilemma, right? A dilemma between letting in too much information, risking political discontent versus letting in too little information, risking, you know, economic stagnation. But they're really, I think in, in the digital age, the dynamics that we just laid out between, you know, this trade-off between this more uh, immediate benefit, the more immediate benefit from data dividend versus the longer term, but subtler kind of detriment from this decreased access to knowledge app, decreased access to knowledge, it really could apply to everybody. And I think that is a sort of admonition to all states in the world, regardless. Essentially, nobody is really immune because this, this dynamic could play out as as readily in a democracy as in, a, in an autocracy. And it's interesting that India is the first country, is the country that you think of since the, because of their long history of import substitution. This sort of seems like another reincarnation of of that same approach, which has not exactly been successful in the past. Right. And I think in this, in, in the current case we're talking about, I think one reinforcing factor in India's case that would make this strategy particularly appealing is to think in terms of the data endowment of India as a country. So India, first of all, it has, has a huge population, but I think equally critically, even more importantly, I would say in the past decade, India has seen a vast increase in internet connectivity for its population. And that I think makes a huge difference because the this whole import substitution story in the digital context that we just told, it depends critically on, you know, the number of users, the concentration of domestic users, and how much of a data dividend that you could plausibly acquire by blocking out foreign digital products and services. I think that's a key piece to the puzzle. Does it do you think it has it's related to globalized a firm's um, network of consumers and suppliers is? I mean, because the incentives as they're laid out, like, like you said, would apply to, could apply anywhere. And so you could imagine an administration here saying, you know, this could be really good to juice the economy and the you know, firm saying, yeah, that sounds good to us too. But we aren't, well, at least on the firm side, we aren't seeing that. And does that have to do with their, you know, the way that their their businesses are spread around the world? Do you think? I absolutely think that is that is a, a a factor too, because in the the Chinese case, right? China really, I think, I mean, if you are speaking from the perspective of of the state planners over there, they really sort of lucked out in terms of timing. I think just as important as this internet barrier. Um, we also have to take into account things like language barrier, right, for for foreign 
digital products and services to have a reasonable market share in China, I think the language barrier really has played a role that oftentimes gets underestimated versus, you know, if you want to break into a equally large market that is predominantly English speaking, I think I think you would have a very different story there potentially. And in terms of in the U.S. case, the U.S. now remains to be the biggest exporter of these digital goods and services. And again, that is, you know, that also makes things quite different if we are talking about whether, you know, a country is on the uh, where they are on the sort of supply chain and whether they are predominantly importing or exporting these digital goods. I think that the story is going to look quite different. Um, so, I mean, this is all related to digital trade. And recently, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office announced that it would no longer oppose data localization rules. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with that because they haven't talked about it anymore since. And Cong people in Congress across parties are, are upset about it. But how, how would that relate to your results? And what would you say to policymakers who are thinking about the potential effects of these, of such rules? Yeah. So I think uh, we, we probably are aware that domestic concerns over, for example, regulation of the so-called big tech and things like AI regulation and the potential implications for things like algorithmic accountability. So these concerns have been the driver for, for this recent reversal or retreat on the part of the USTR. Obviously, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about this being an uh, sort of emboldening move for, for China and emboldening for countries looking to adopt China's approach to, to internet to internet policy, to this kind of trade barrier in the uh, digital space. So, so I definitely see where they're coming from. And I think there is a legitimate, that's a legitimate line of, of argument to be made. On the other hand, Right. I think this could also uh, this could also be a little overblown. This sort of this threat that this threat that you know the China model is going to take over. China is going to be all over the place with its like digital Silk Road strategy that is going to see even less resistance right among countries in the world now that the pressure from the U.S. is gone. The thing is, um, we have seen. I think that has doesn't have all to do with the pressure from the U.S. We have seen in the recent years, especially in the most recent year or two, countries have been a lot of countries, also different countries on the on the political spectrum. You have democracies, but also autocracies that are relaxing their data localization restrictions. We're talking about, for example, India has been relaxing its data localization restrictions, and so has Saudi Arabia very recently, in the very recent months. And of all countries, China has taken pretty serious steps in backtracking on its data localization, cross-border data flow restrictions. And the thing is, you know, I think one simple explanation there is countries have now several years in, they have now realized and seen the very real material detriment, very real drag on their own economy from imposing something as as cumbersome as, as these measures. And naturally, I think they are just doing something out of self-interest. And that's probably good news for the uh, 
the U.S. because, sure, I think the U.S. pressure in some ways may have catalyzed some of these moves. But I think even on their own, I think uh, countries, they are recognizing the sort of, they are recognizing how these measures may be already shooting themselves in foot. So so the the U.S. past past advocacy for uh, free trade and data will offset the U.S.'s attempt to shoot itself in the foot. Is that what you're saying? We can, we can, we can uh, write a uh, research paper on that. That would be right. a quantitative study. So we're almost out of time, but before we go, um, how did you decide to work on on this particular topic? I mean, you've been studying now for for a long time, and brought you to it. Sure. So funny enough, I was. The impetus for this current study that finally materialized into into my dissertation, it actually came from my experience around the 2010s when I was when I was in China doing field work on a completely unrelated topic, on a completely different topic. And there, of course, you know, I immediately noticed something different about the internet. Something was was off with the internet connection there. And the so on the very micro level, right, on a very individual level, two things that struck me immediately was basically literally what I eventually hypothesized as the two key mechanisms. One is the substitution effect where, you know, when something was blocked, when a foreign website was blocked, people who would otherwise not use a domestic app, they now would have to download, for example, you know, WeChat or whatever app there was. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is this, like I said, this, this decrease in the rate of knowledge access, right? So the, the example that I gave about browsing articles online, that very much came from my personal experience. And my thought then, right, was if this is how, how much of a drag that it is having on my productivity as one small researcher's experience, how that is going to aggregate on a population of billions that's got to we've got to see some kind of effect on the aggregate even if we do not see it now eventually at some point maybe sooner than later we are going to see something materializing and when i of course when i first attempted to propose this as a dissertation topic there was quite a bit of resistance i'll just put it mildly and that was 2016, 2017. So it, it wasn't that long ago. But... That's really interesting. Why why did they resist that? I mean, it seems like, I mean, it seems like even at the time, it must have seemed like a great topic. So it's a very kind of positional kind of argument. You know, this is our identity yeah. and we just don't do something like this. And I think, you know, the years since, right? First, you know, misinformation campaigns and the role of digital platforms that became squarely a political science topic. Mm-hmm. And by now, also, this this digital trade barrier has finally, I think, become a legitimate line of of inquiry after after I think after too long, if you ask me. But I think that just goes to show the the kind of inertia that often, unfortunately, takes place in in academia and how entrenched. I think academics can be about prevailing theories, about, you know, sticking to the theories. We can only make incremental incremental progress and we have to, maybe like more so in my fields than in yours, but, you know, we have to write a 10-page literature review, first of all. Short of that, we can't even vet you as a legitimate scholar. So 
So on that point, I have to make a shout out to my committee members who really took a risk <laughs> by standing, standing behind me. One of who is Yasheng Huang, who was on your podcast, I believe. Mm -hmm. So my committee members, professors Kenneth Oi, Insong Kim, and Yasheng Huang from, the, uh, from MIT. Yeah, I, I really owe so much of what I have accomplished to them, to their courage. Well, and I'm glad you persisted because it's, it's great work that needs to be continued. And one more, one more question. So you mentioned in your bio that you're, you're also an artist, you music and plays and tell me a little bit about that. I mean, was that ever, did you ever consider that as a career or was it always more of a hobby? Yeah. I mean, I'm a classically trained musician. I play the piano, but pretty quickly after I got my performance diploma, I just went into composing. And that's where I actually, when I actually started to have a lot of fun. So I started doing that in China and then in Singapore and then in the US, I started writing plays and directing plays and acting in my plays. And it just gives me a lot of joy. But theatrical arts, unfortunately, it's very hard to do it on your own, as I've come to realize. So it's kind of almost hard to, to make it into a career if, if you, right? Because like when you're in school, you have, you know, the venue and the people you can work with, and then the school sort of supports you for everything. But once you're out of school, it becomes really, really hard, which is a bit of a shame because I, I still feel very connected to that part of me. It's very much still in me. For example, like when I watch movies, I never want to watch movies with other people because, you know, the director, the playwright in me, I would keep rewinding, playing back just to, you know, critique on the directing, just to like see, oh, if, if a directing was particularly good, I would just like replay that for 20 times and nobody wants to, to watch movies with me. So I think I'm still very much in touch with that side of me. But I think you're right. I... I would say, especially I think in the initial years of, you know, me being a political scientist researcher, I definitely, I was in hiding very much. I did not want to be seen almost as hmm. a creative person, as if that would detract from my leg legitimacy as a, a researcher, as a positivist kind of empirical researcher, which, you know, is no longer the case now. And I write that in my bios these days, because I think I've come to, to, to acknowledge that if it's something that's very salient to my identity, then, you know, it should be out there. People should know this, 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 that about me too. I, I think creativity is a key part of good research. Otherwise it's, it's nothing interesting. So. I completely agree with you. And, you know, it's what catalyzes new combinations, right? If, if we think of innovation essentially as new combinations of mm -hmm. pieces of information. And I do think me being having a sort of creative mindset has been, I think, a huge plus in just seeing some, you know, connections all of a sudden in the middle of the night, just because, whereas if I were to follow a more conventional kind of path or a conventional way of thinking, I, I don't think nearly, almost nearly as many ideas would have come to me in the middle of the night, typically. Yeah. Well, this was really great. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me. And I hope we will talk again soon. Thank you, Scott. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you for having me. Thanks.